Uh, for sake of time, I won't go back and rehash the other six. We'll just go into the, the four for this morning. If you want all of them, uh, feel free to contact me. I can send them out to you via email. Um, but just by sa- for sake of reminder, the title of the sermon, this is part three of A Better Faith, Facets and Fallacies of True Faith. <clears throat> and again, the big idea is this, that true faith finds its foundation, motivation, and endurance in God's revelation of himself and his promises to us. And I hope that as we've gone through this book of this chapter 11 in Hebrews, that you really have seen that borne out, that you have seen those three realities, that it is, that it, its foundation is in God and how he has revealed himself. Its motivation is in God and how he's revealed himself and his endurance, which is more what we'll look at this, this morning, is in God's revelation of himself and his promises to us. And I hope, that, I hope that you've seen that. I hope that it has become more real to you that the understanding, the concept of biblical faith has become more biblical as we've looked at these facets and fallacies, as we've looked at uh, the ways oftentimes that we misunderstand faith or that we uh, misapply faith, um, sometimes without even really realizing that we're doing it. And, uh, and I hope as we've gone through this chapter that the author has, has given us much to think about, much to consider, and much even maybe to change in the way that we approach this topic of faith. So we'll jump right in here to uh, number seven. This is the confidence of true faith. The confidence of true faith. So the fallacy here is that God will never give me more than I can handle. God will never give me more than I can handle. Now, you've probably heard that before. You've probably heard somebody say that. You may have even heard somebody preach that, um, hopefully in the biblical way, um, out of the one verse in Scripture that we really have that says anything like that. Um, but that's, if we're not careful, we can come to this idea of faith and, and put our faith in, a, in an idea that God is never going to take us beyond our limits. That, uh, that God is, you know, he knows uh, our, our frame, right? He knows that we are dust. And we can misappropriate that verse too. And, uh, and we can say he's, he's never going to take us beyond, uh, beyond what we can handle. And if we're not careful, uh, that statement really can become a statement of self-confidence, rather than a statement of confidence in God. It can become a statement of, I have a certain amount of ability. I have maybe even enough faith. And so God knows what that limit is, and he's never going to take me past it. What's interesting is that idea doesn't fit well with most of our experiences, does it? That idea doesn't fit well when we come to time of suffering and hardship, just listening to Eric pray this morning and, and hearing the different people dealing with cancer, long-standing uh, sicknesses, even some that have, that have kept them from being able to, to be a part of the body with us on a regular basis. And if we're not careful, we can see those sufferings and those trials in our lives and we can have this idea that God shouldn't be giving me more than I can handle and, and even 
lose faith completely. I know people who have seen others walk through trials that they didn't think were, were right. Or they've even walked through trials themselves that they didn't think that there was any, any, way, any way to get through it. And instead of responding in a desire to draw closer to God and rely more on God, they walk away from God. Because trials in our life are given to us to reveal our faith. So I want to look at the confidence of true faith this morning here. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 22, we see this displayed for us. And the first way that we see that is that true faith is confident that God's commands are perfect and just despite earthly consequences. We see that in these first two verses here in 17 and 18. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. If you know the story, hopefully you do. We, we went through it in Genesis several years ago, uh, if you were here. Uh, but Abraham had this son named Isaac, the promised son, the one that God had promised him. We just read about that uh, last week, that in, in Sarah believed that God could do it, even though she was uh, way past childbearing age, you know, and, and God did this miracle and he gave them this child named Isaac. He was the promised son that God had given to them. And then God turns around and says, I want you to take Isaac and I want you to go up to this mountain. I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, we don't know what went on in Abraham's mind. We don't know what other conversations he had, really. We don't know we assume that there had to have been some form of struggle just because he's a human. Um, and, and we as parents, those of us that are parents, cannot understand how anyone could follow through in an act of obedience like that. But yet we see here that Abraham was confident that God's command to him Though he didn't understand why, though he didn't understand how in the world this was going to fit with all the promises that God had given him earlier, he believed that God's commands were true, were just, and were right. And so he went through with it. Up to the point of being ready to kill his son before the Lord stopped him. He believed that the commands were perfect and just, despite the earthly consequences. He knew if he followed through, his son would be dead. And despite that, he knew that God was righteous and just, and that somehow this command that God had given him was a just command. Of course, we know in hindsight that God's desire was just to test him. It was to prove his faithfulness to him. But Abraham didn't know that. Abraham was simply following the command that God had given to him. So often we fail to do that. We have commands that God has given to us and, and we think that maybe, well, maybe in this instance it, it, it doesn't need to happen that way. Or maybe in these circumstances I don't need to respond like that. Maybe there's a, a situation where we need to confront 
a brother or sister who's unwilling to listen. And God commands us to go through that process of confrontation, but yet, but I don't want to ruin that relationship. Or my circumstances, this is going to be, this is going to be bad news. They're going to respond incorrectly. Maybe they'll even leave the church. Are we confident that the commands of the Lord are just and right and perfect? Are we willing to obey? Maybe it's an opportunity to share the gospel with someone that we know will persecute us. Someone that we know will laugh at us. Someone that we know will will mock us or worse, harm us in some way. Maybe it's the command to raise our children in discipline and instruction of the Lord, and we, and we work to do that, but yet it seems like the child is, is walking away, is wandering away from the path. Are we faithful to stick to the commands that God has given us, or do we give up? Do we believe in the perfect and just command of the Lord? Maybe it's the act of loving our spouse when they are unlovable or when they mistreat us and sin against us and maybe when they're potentially not even a believer? Are we willing to obey the commands of God even in those hard situations? Do we see them as just and perfect and right? Not only is true faith confident in God's commands, but true faith is confident in God's promises, even when they seem impossible. What's the next verse there? It says, He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This was the child that he knew was promised to him. There was a promise that God had made. Not just that he would have the child, but the promise was that the child was the one through whom the world would be blessed. This was the child that that God was going to make a great nation out of. And so not only was he obedient, he was willing to trust the commands of God, but he was willing to confidently follow through and trust the promise was going to be fulfilled. Even if that meant that God had to reach down and raise his son up from the dead to do it. He was confident that God would do what he said he would do. Are you confident in what God has promised this morning? Let me give you just a few examples from Scripture. Do you confidently live in these realities? Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Do you confidently live in that reality? Or do you spend your days worrying and conniving and trying to figure out how you can manipulate your situation so that you can take care of everything in your own strength. 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you live in that reality this morning? Do you really believe that? Or are you sitting there beating yourself up over and over and over again? Are you listening to the lies of Satan as he tells you, you're worthless, you're no good, there's nothing that you can do, God can't forgive that? Or do you believe the promise of God that he is faithful and he is just to forgive us and that he will do it? Do you live in that reality? 
Philippians 1 verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you live in that reality? Yes, we fail. We sin every day. We fall short of the glory of God every day, probably every hour. And it's easy if we're not careful for us to fall into this trap of thinking that we'll never, we'll never be better. Just, give, just stop trying because nothing's going to change. Maybe we think that for ourselves. Maybe we think that about a family member, a friend, a fellow believer here in the church, and we give up. Yet God has promised that he will complete the work that he began. Do we live confidently in God or we just hope that he's faithful? Because there's a difference there. We can either live just being like, well, man, I really hope that God comes through like he said he would. That's not Abraham. Abraham went up to the mountain and he took that knife and he's ready to kill his son because he firmly believed that if God needed to, he would raise him from the dead so that his promise would not fail. Do we live in that type of confidence? True faith is confident in God's promises, but true faith is confident in God's faithfulness, not just now, but for future generations. And it seeks to set a godly example for them. I believe that's what we're seeing here as we look at verses 20 through 22. It says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when, he, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bone. what do, bones, what do, you see, what do we see here? We see these men who have received these promises, right? Isaac had received the promise from his father Abraham. And he knew, he knew the promise that God had given. And here he is, he's giving future blessings. He's looking forward to what God is going to do through his line. And he does so visibly and audibly with his sons, Jacob and Esau. And he, and he looks forward to it and shows them and reminds them of the promises that God has laid out for them. And then Jacob doing the same thing there to the sons of Joseph as he is about ready to die. Again, reminding of the promises of God, setting an example to look forward to what God was going to do with confidence. These were not hope-so blessings. These were confident blessings based on the promises that God had given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, I always found this interesting, he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. I don't know if you remember, but way back in Genesis, um, when God is giving some of these uh, promises to Abraham, we see God lay out what's going to happen for his people Israel. He says that they are going to be slaves in a foreign land. And he tells them how long they're going to be there. And he tells them they're going to come back out and they're going to come to the land of Canaan. 
You don't think Joseph knew that? You don't think that was rehearsed down through the line? Because Joseph knew that there was going to be a day when they would come out of the land of Egypt and he wanted to make sure that his body went with them. He made plans for the future. Do we live in fear for our children? We look at this world around us and we see the wickedness in this world. And if we're not careful, it's easy for us to to live in fear ourselves, but then we see how bad it's getting and how much worse it, it is in, in our way of thinking than it has been in our life. And if we're not careful, we can become fearful of, of the world that our children are going to have to live in and, and serve God in. But true faith is confident in God's faithfulness. It's confident in God's plan and it plans and leads an example for future generations. Is that how we are interacting with the world? Are we leaving an example for them to follow or are we leaving an example of fear? Are we confidently proclaiming the word of God? Are we confidently living out the word of God? Or are we hiding Philippians 2, 14 through 17 says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Sound familiar? Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Is that how we view faith? Are we pouring ourselves out into the lives of the next generation? Maybe here you don't have children that are here in the home. Are you pouring your lives out into the next generation in some other way? Maybe you want to Maybe some other discipleship that you're, you have one-on-one with, with other young people in the church, maybe even outside the church. Are you proclaiming the faithfulness of God to the next generation? That's what we see here about true faith. The fallacy is that God will never give me more than I can handle. You think Abraham wondered if he could handle Sacrificing his son. Isaac and Jacob wandering for years in the, in the desert, the promised land, never owning anything. Constantly moving. Jacob, Joseph knowing what was going to happen to his family for the next 400 years. But they had faith. They had confidence in God. That no matter what he brought into their life, he would sustain them through it because his promises are faithful. True faith confidently perseveres through unimaginable trials because it trusts God's purpose and promises. Number eight, 
the courage of true faith. The courage of true faith. The fallacy here is that if I have enough faith, God will rescue me from these trials. The first one was, I shouldn't be in the trials, (laughs) right? Uh, God will never give me too much to handle. But this one is, if I have enough faith, then God will rescue me. He will take me out of these trials. Uh, This comes oftentimes from from the idea that, that living the Christian life shouldn't be difficult. You know, we're, we're following after God, so we should have things easy, right? We shouldn't have to go through hardship and trial and, and, and danger. And if we're not careful, we can even begin to view trials not as part of God's plan, but as part of Satan's plan. Now, does Satan have plans against us? Absolutely. He absolutely does. But Satan can do nothing. Nothing that God does not allow him to do. The book of Job makes that very clear. If we're not careful, we begin to see these trials not as God's hand working in our lives to draw us closer to him, but as punishment, as attacks of the devil, as things that we don't really deserve. Let's see what the scripture says. True faith courageously opposes earthly commands that violate God's clear commands in scripture. Here we see in in verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, it always throws, throws me off, Moses isn't the one doing the action here. But anyway, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. What's going on here? The king had said all the, all the Hebrew children should be, boys should be killed, right? And he even, he even commanded the midwives to be the ones that would do it, and they, they refused to do it too. Uh, but here we see the parents, it says specifically, it says not being afraid of the king's Egypt. They were, they were willing to stand up to Pharaoh and what he had commanded because they knew that it was wrong. It was evil. They were courageous. It, it could have been death. For them to have disobeyed, they could have been killed along with their child and probably their other children. But yet they courageously opposed this earthly evil command that violates God's clear command in Scripture. This is not the first time that we see this in Scripture. We see this in Daniel chapter 3, actually in Daniel chapter 1 as well, but this one's probably maybe maybe even more famous. Daniel chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Now if you are ready, this is Nebuchadnezzar, he's speaking to the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they had refused to bow down to the golden image. And so here he is giving them a second chance. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tigrant, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast in the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You just see him snarling as he says that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
we have no need to answer you in this matter. That's their first statement. We don't really have to give you an answer because they'd already given the answer. They didn't bow down the first time. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. There's a caveat there, though. That's a lot of confidence, right? God's going God's gonna to save us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See, it's not just faith having confidence that God will do what we hope he will do. It's having faith and courage that even if he doesn't come through the way we want him to, we will not swerve from obedience. How often do we fail to follow that example when the slightest bit of persecution comes and we give in? We give in to temptation or peer pressure. Things that we know that we should not be doing. Things that are go against God's clear commands of Scripture. There's no question about it. And yet we give in over and over and over and over again. And we don't stand up courageously and say, not this time. No further. I will obey the commandment of the Lord. Acts 5, 27 through 29, we see, if I remember correctly, Peter and John brought before the, el- the elders of the, in the council of Jerusalem, and they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And if you go back and read what they were preaching, that's exactly what they were doing. They were saying, you killed him. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. Now, I do want to give a caveat. Because unfortunately, this truth of courageously opposing earthly commands can be misused. If we're not careful, we can begin to try to assume that anything that we don't like, anything we don't agree with, is something that we should oppose. But when you look at Scripture and you see those who stood up, you see that they always stand up against commands that command them to violate the Word of God. Not their desires, not their freedoms, not their wants, the Word of God. But when it happens, they are courageous and they stand. The question is, are we courageously standing for God's word. True faith courageously accepts persecution over pleasure. We see that here in Moses, verse 24. 
By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. See, true faith courageously accepts persecution. He went out to be with his people to suffer with his people. Here, the one who was raised in the household of Pharaoh with access to all the wealth and the, and the wonder and the majesty and the pleasure of Egypt. Knowing whose he was, chose rather to suffer with his people, chose rather the persecution and the right author of Hebrews here says the persecution of Christ, the reproach of Christ, greater because he saw a better reward, better than all the wealth of Egypt. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17 says this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Right then? Not necessarily. You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Sounds like courage to me, does it not? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing either. Do we really believe that? Or do we cower in fear of persecution? Do we really believe that it is better to suffer for doing good? Or do we hide? Romans 5, 2 through 5. Through him, speaking of Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of, of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. When was the last time you rejoiced in your suffering? That's a, that's a hard statement. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Are we courageous in the midst of persecution? Or do we seek pleasure instead? True faith courageously acts in spite of fearful circumstances. Moving on with, with uh, Moses here, he says, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. True faith courageously acts in spite of fearful circumstances. First here we have uh, him fleeing Egypt. He had killed one of his fellow Egyptians, 
because he was beating uh, one of his fellow Hebrews. And the next day, he tries to break up a fight between his, his brothers, and they said, who are you? You're going to kill us too? Because just like you killed that guy? And it got around and it got to the Pharaoh, and he, he was angry. But it's interesting that the, the writer of Hebrews says that he didn't leave for fear of Pharaoh. He left because he was pursuing something else. He left because there was something of greater value. And then he comes back and, and we go through nine plagues and we come to the last plague and there is this death angel that is going to come. And he's going to kill all the firstborn in Egypt. And there is one act that can be done to save anybody in a house. And that is to put the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts and the lintel. And he gives that command and he follows through with that process in the midst of a very scary and fearful time. There's fear because of the plagues that have happened. There's fear because of this plague that is about to come. There's fear because of the way that the Egyptians had been treating them. Pharaoh, back and forth and back and forth. I'll let him go. I won't let him go. You can go worship. You can't go worship. When is this going to end? And yet in the midst of that, he acts in faith and obedience courageously. Are we fearful people or are we faith-filled people? Psalm 23, 4 says this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 2 Timothy 1, 5-7, I have reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Are we living courageously by faith in what Jesus Christ has done? Or are we fearful of the trials and the hardship and we're just begging for God to get us out? See, the fallacy is that I have, if I have enough faith, God will rescue me from these trials. But the reality is that true faith trusts God's plan and courageously endures trials to the end courageously endures trials to the end. Number nine, the crown of true faith. The crown of true faith, or if you prefer a non-C word, the reward for true faith. The fallacy here is that if I have enough faith, I should expect earthly health, wealth, and prosperity. If I have enough faith, I should expect earthly health, wealth, and prosperity. This is one of the Greatest misunderstandings, false teachings, false focuses on the purpose of faith that we see in the world today. It is being proclaimed on television and radio and in churches, so-called, all throughout the United States and the world. It is a completely man-centered view of faith 
as if it is an action that requires God to do something that we desire Him to do. We've already looked at that reality. But it is 100% self-focused and it seeks to make the rewards of faith merely temporal, temporary benefits. It seeks to get the rewards of faith here and now in a way that I can tangibly see them. But that is not what we see in the book of Hebrews. That is not what we see in this great hall of faith. Rather, we see that true faith may result in earthly blessings. It's a possibility. We have a whole group of verses here, verses 29 through 35. It says, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. That's an earthly blessing, is it not? They obeyed by faith, earthly blessing. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days, earthly blessing. By faith, they obeyed, earthly blessing. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Faith, earthly blessing. And what shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Does that not seem like earthly blessings? Earthly success? Absolutely. It's not that there is no earthly success with faith. It's just that that's not the only success with faith. That's not the only reward of faith. And I would argue it's not even the greatest reward of faith. It's interesting, most of those rewards, if you go back and read them, required some steps of obedience. They required work to participate in that process. Joshua chapter 23, verses 15 through 14 through 16 says this, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Joshua was reminding them that God has been faithful to his promises. But he continues. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you, and go again and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall per- perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. There's a requirement there. See, these earthly blessings oftentimes follow and are closely associated with obedience. But there are blessings of faith that are not earthly in nature, but rather eternal. And oftentimes, faith that is looking for those eternal blessings will find that 
it results in earthly pain. What's the rest of that section? The women receive their dead back by resurrection. Then it turns dark. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Why? So that they might rise again to a better life. Willing to die by torture because the promise that they knew would be theirs. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Are you willing to have faith for that? You know, we'll sign up all day long for the earthly blessings, won't we? Yeah, give me victories and war. Give me people being raised from the dead. Give me all these great things. Because I have faith in God. He can do that. But are we willing to suffer and die? Simply because we believe the promises of God. True faith perseveres regardless of the earthly consequences because the promises of God are sure. Hebrews 10.23 reminds us of this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. 2 Timothy 2.11-13. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Whether we have blessings or pain, true faith will always result in an eternal reward because God is faithful. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive what? The crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Hebrews 10.35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Do we have enough faith to believe that there is a reward that God has promised for faithfulness? The fallacy is that if I have enough faith, I should expect earthly health, wealth, and prosperity. But the reality is that true faith 
is not swayed by earthly gains or losses because it finds its hope in the faithfulness of God. Is that where your hope is this morning? Finally, the confluence of true faith. The fallacy here is that the Old Testament saints were saved by works, but we are saved by faith. Again, this is a misunderstanding of even this passage in the Hall of Faith. We talked about this early on. If, we don't, if we're not careful, we can look, to, look at this passage and see it as a passage of a hall of works. Because by faith they did this, and they did this, and they did this. And we can so quickly run over those two words, by faith. And that's the whole point that the author is trying to get through to us, is that all of it is by faith and not by works. So this fallacy that the Old Testament saves were saved by works, but we are saved by faith is summed up and refuted here in these last two verses. Verse 39, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. All these promises that they were looking forward to, they had not received. Since God had promised something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I I have this um, term confluence. If you're not familiar with it, um, it's actually an app that we use in development uh, a lot. So I'm used to it. It's kind of a weird word, though. It means a, a meeting together or a joining together or a working together. And here in these last two verses, we see the reality of how God redeems, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And we see these two streams come together by faith. First of all, for the Old Testament saints, true faith rested in the promise of Christ's coming. True faith rested in the promise of Christ's coming, even as far back as Genesis 3, verse 15, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first mention of the Messiah after the fall of man. And from that point on, throughout all of the Old Testament, we see over and over and over again the promises and the prophecies that the Christ would come, that Messiah would come, and that he would save his people. And so the Old Testament saints looked forward to that. Galatians 3, 1 through 9 says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. They did not receive what was promised because Christ had not yet come. 
And they were looking forward to and resting in the promise of Christ's coming. But for us today, true faith rests in the promise of Christ's covenant. True faith rests in the promise of Christ's covenant. We now look back on what Jesus Christ has done. And we believe. We believe what Scripture says about him. We believe what Scripture says about us. We believe what he has done. And that what he has done has perfectly completed everything that was required. And so we no longer look forward in hope of, of, of being saved. We look forward in hope of having that perfect relationship and walk with God face to face because we've already been saved. Because Jesus has already completed the work that was necessary. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is what they're looking for and what we have already received. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the, old, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and, he, and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin. No more. We have the promise of Christ's covenant, the promise of forgiveness of sins, the promise of a restored relationship with God, the promise of inward transformation, being conformed to his image. And true faith rests on that promise that is that new covenant. See, both the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints meet together at the cross. They meet together in the blood of Jesus Christ. They meet together in his broken body. And that is why the author of Hebrews here says that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the confluence of true faith. The fallacy is that the Old Testament people were saved by works, but we are saved by faith. The reality is that true faith and the promised Messiah has always been God's plan of redemption. The question this morning is, how is your faith? How's your faith? As we've gone through and looked at all these different realities of faith, these, these fallacies, are there fallacies that you've fallen into? Maybe you've begun to believe or, or even act out. Are you recalibrating back to the word of God, back to a, a proper understanding of faith here in the book of Hebrews, verse chapter 11? Is your faith active? Is it producing good fruit or are you living for yourself? Is your faith strong in spite of persecution or are you hiding and just trying to get by unharmed? Is your faith looking forward to eternal reward or seeking earthly fulfillment? Is your faith resting fully, completely in the promises of God and Christ's completed work? Do you really believe 
what you claim to believe, and are you living like it? Because that is true faith. Men, if you would come forward. In a couple of minutes, we will take the Lord's Supper together. Take this time, even now, as we, as we pray to go before the Lord. And if there's anything between you and the Savior, even, even just a hint of doubt in the way that you're living, in the way that you're thinking, the way that you're walking with Him, get it right before the Lord. If there's an issue between you and someone else here in the body, get, take care of it before we come to the Lord's table before we share in remembering this covenant that Christ has given us, this new covenant in his blood. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the new covenant. We thank you that we are no longer under the law, but we, because of Jesus Christ and his shed blood and his broken body, are under grace that there is no work that we can do, no act that we can perform that could ever do anything to make us right in your eyes, that could ever restore the relationship that is broken by our sin. And yet Jesus Christ came and he lived the perfect life. And he gave his life a ransom for many. And we celebrate that reality this morning. And Lord, I pray that as we remember him, that our hearts would be pure, that our hearts would, would be in tune with yours. I pray that if, if there's anyone here that is not even a believer, that, Lord, you would, um, that you would convict them, that you would help them to see that, that they need you, that they cannot live a life of faith if they don't even have faith in Jesus Christ and his completed work to begin with. God, I pray that you would Save those who are here even this morning that do not know you. And Father, I pray that you would help us in this time of remembrance to simply love you more, to praise you more. And I pray that even because of this reality that we would by faith serve you more. Not for our own glory, but for yours. In Jesus' name, amen.